0: Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. My name's Mark. Um, Pastor, um, B- Pastors Brian and Caitlin asked me to stand in. They're on vacation uh, this morning. So if you are a visitor of Light Church downtown, I want to assure you that I'm not the normal guy, and so if you're sitting there and you go, wow, he went a little long, or he's a little old, or a little boring, or a lot boring, whatever, I want to assure you that next Sunday things go back to normal with pastors Brian and or Caitlin preaching, and um, we're, we're really grateful for them. So as we begin, I just want to begin by um, praying for them as they're on vacation and ask that the Lord refresh them. So Father, we thank you for this time together this morning, Lord, as we seek to hear you shepherd us this morning through uh, the scriptures. We want to lift up our pastors, Brian and Caitlin, Lord, we ask that um, your hand would be upon them, Lord, that this wouldn't merely be time off or time out, but it would be uh, a special time for them to regather as a family. Lord, that they would be fresh, refreshed, renewed. Lord, that um, it it would be a time for your peace, your wholeness, your well-being to be established afresh in their lives, Lord, that uh, they would just sense fresh energy, both as a a family, Lord, but uh, as a family engaged in ministry, Lord, we pray that you would give them fresh affirmation, uh, release. Uh, Lord, we pray for their sons and we ask that this would be a special time for them with their parents as well. So God, we thank you for this time together. And as we present ourselves afresh to you, we do ask that the tangible weight of your presence uh, would fill this place, Lord. Lord, that we might leave here, and when we gather, whether it's at school, at work, wherever, um, later today, tomorrow, that we could answer the question, what did you do this weekend, we could, without arrogance or pretense, say, you know, this weekend, I felt that Jesus pastored me. So we welcome your presence here this morning as um, we talk about idols in Jesus' name. Amen. So we started a series on the Ten Commandments, and so... um, Caitlin and Brian asked me to, to, we're on commandment number two this morning, and so um, we're talking, we're calling it Idle Talk, uh, and and to have a conversation together about what does this commandment uh, mean in our lives today, and so I want to look at three things this morning. I, I want us to look at the fact that this, this is a good word that's been given to us, and I want to look at the context and content of the second commandment. I want to do a quick case study in idolatry when the good word is broken. And then the good word illustrated, I want to talk about creativity uh, and the second commandment as we close this time together. So um, let me invite you to stand and we'll we'll read a couple of passages. Uh, well, this way we'll just read the second commandment. Let's start in, Genesis, in Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. So again, Father, we ask that you would um, set aside this passage, Lord, for um, equipping us, teaching us, releasing us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You can have a seat. Um. So I want to first look at um, the context uh, for this commandment as, as just a way of revisiting that even though we live in a time in which laws and authority, uh, we're struggling with how to do that. There's a breach of trust. There's a loss of expectation. And yet here as a centerpiece is, is, are these Ten Commandments, which actually are never called Commandments. Uh, in, the Jude- in the Jewish faith. Uh, the Jews refer to these as the 10 words. And it's interesting that nowhere in this does God say, I command you. Instead, the language is of, of someone speaking with you. And so it's almost like God is having a conversation around 10 guardrails uh, that, are, that are meant to ensure our, our freedom as a people And so as we talk about this, I want to just remind us that the context for these 10 words is one that this is the birth of a nation. For 400 years, uh, the Jews have been oppressed and enslaved in Egypt. And so God redeems them. He brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai, and he begins to do culture shaping and nation birthing really in an instant. We sometimes forget what 400 years of slavery and oppression in which your every day is told what you're going to do. The agenda for that day is set for you. Your labor is not for your own um, provision and and your own uh, prosperity. It's to serve another. Everything you do is in a sense being spent and sacrificed on behalf of others, or in this case, another nation, another ruler. But for 400 years, this has been going on. And sometimes we forget the impact that 400 years could have upon a people. Just think about our national conversations that are ongoing in terms of the impact and the consequences of slavery in our country. And yet we're talking, you know, 300 years. 400 years enslaved, and God brings them to a location, and he has to teach them, form them into a nation. I mean, think about it. He gives them laws. He gives them architecture. For those of you who are familiar, he's going to tell them how to build a, a, a portable worship space along with the art and decoration that goes along with that. He even gives them fashion. He tells the priests how to dress, what to wear, how to handle themselves. Culture, ethics, behavior, beauty, art, architecture, leadership, they're all being formed in this relatively brief time around a mountain. And while there, God introduces kind of the framework and guardrails as he speaks to Moses, as Moses will speak to the people And he lays out what Judaism calls the 10 words. And the first word is, you'll have no other God before me. And the second word deals with idols. Secondly, where we'll get in trouble is if we continue the traditional habit of calling the Old Testament the Old Testament, and the New Testament, the New Testament. Think in terms of first and second, okay? When I was growing up, I first had a typewriter, and I hated that thing as you'd write papers because the minute you make an error, you either get erasable paper or you'd have this film that you would then type to take out the previous word, Some of you are old enough to at least have seen one. Uh, But but I'll never forget when computers became the norm, I almost wanted to go through school and grad school again because of just the sheer freedom that typing using Word or pages or whatever you use um, to type, and that I wouldn't have to figure out how much room to leave at the bottom of the paper for a footnote. Um, That came first, and then the computer came second and and the freedom that the computer gave you made the typewriter obsolete not because the typewriter wasn't good and useful in its time it's just that following the first experience of the typewriter with the second experience of the computer and now they've gone portable they you know with the laptop and your iPad and whatever is that all of these things kind of make what came first no longer necessary. They're made redundant. And so we have, when we think about the Ten Commandments and how the, the First Testament gets picked up and applied in the Second Testament, what we traditionally call the New Testament, sometimes we think that there's a wedge between the two, uh, where instead it's just a sequence of God presenting and revealing himself and forming a people Who can ultimately be completed in that we see in the Second Testament through the person and presence, the power and promise of Jesus Christ. And so, recognizing that, that this is, they've been brought here to a mountain to be formed into a nation. And what are the things that they first encounter with God that will then be eclipsed? by what people encounter secondly through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, remember that the Holy Spirit is forming within us an ethical being who has the nerve to live like the God who has revealed himself and ultimately to live like Jesus, extending his unconditional grace without compromising our Father's unending truth. They are given to form us into the likeness of the one who loves us. And then finally, the context of this is God is speaking to a people whose identity is still one of, of slavery, and he is extending to them uh, guardrails and frameworks so that ultimately this is the law of liberty. And liberty is not something that that mindset is not something you can achieve It's something that ultimately has to be revealed to you. And so, you know, I think about it in terms of something simple like this. When my kids were little, you tell them, don't you dare go into the street without us. Because it's not natural for that child to see a car coming and go, that object can kill me. Instead, it's something that has to be taught. There's certain fundamental realities that have to be revealed uh, that, that preserve our health, our freedom. And, and the reality is, is that although these 10 words are framed negatively, a single negative injunction is far less limiting than a positive injunction. When a positive injunction says, you shall do this, that's your only option. That's the only thing you can do. When God says, don't do this, He's basically saying, everything else is okay. You have complete freedom. Let this be a guardrail. Don't, don't encourage this, don't live like this. But the negative injunction is actually an opportunity to explore your freedom. It's kind of like if you're familiar with the narrative in Genesis and the Garden of Eden, God says, you have everything here. You can do anything, you can eat anything here, Except for this. And in the except for this, we, we so focus on that one exception that, that we fail to realize that the garden was given to us as a gift and we had complete freedom to explore anything and everything except the one thing that would harm us. And as we that's why when whether it's with kids or in the workplace, whatever, you want to frame opportunities with freedom rather than injunctions. Because the whole thing is you don't want to inhibit a person's capacity to be creative, to to explore, to learn, to develop. And so that's the context, I think, of what's happening here um, in the Ten Commandments. So as we move on, I want to look at the the the, context, the content for this commandment, and I want to make s- some observations. I want to first look at the community that this word is given to. The Ten Commandments overall this word in particular is given to a community it's not about individual morality first it's about what is this nation going to look like? what is this nation going to do? what are her best practices and even though individuals have to keep these ten words. It's ultimately not about your individuality, it's about the community that you're participating in. What are the characteristics of this community, this nation that God is forming? And the, and the first characteristic for this community is going to be that this community does not practice idolatry. Now idolatry is something that we look at through the lenses of hindsight because you have to be told that these pieces of art that have been intentionally created for the purpose of resourcing and being a focus of worship is not healthy, good, or true. That in in itself is an act of revelation, because idolatry assumes that you know that what you're worshiping in reality doesn't exist and so because of this revelation of God, we have a concept of idolatry when in fact leading on to the, to the next um, piece of content is, is this, is that there's an exclusivity to this commandment because idolatry or worshiping idols that represent gods, that's the cultural norm. Uh, in the ancient world, There was this pantheon of gods. It's almost like, think about it as a spiritual mutual fund that you had a portfolio of, of gods that you would put together and that if you had issues with fertility, you'd worship this God. If you had an issue of of business, you might worship this God. If you wanted to, to preserve your crops, you'd worship this God. I mean, whatever it is, there was a God for everything. And so you kind of had this spiritual portfolio of gods that you would worship and you'd have statues and representations that you would literally pray to bow down to because that thing represented that God, that there was a direct relationship between the object worshipped that you worshipped before and the reality that that stands against them. And in this commandment, in this word, God is saying, this nation, this people worships me exclusively. In a world of gods, the, the, the question wasn't, are there gods in terms of their worldview? It's just, who's the capital G God that demands your worship? And this is what makes the community unique. The, the community would say, listen, we know there's a lot of gods out there, and there's a lot of people do, worshiping these gods and those gods and everything, but this community... We only and solely worship this God because this God is the one who redeemed us and saved us. And this exclusivity marked out the Jewish people in a world of many gods. So when we think about pluralism and all the different worldviews that exist in our world today, it's not that far a reach to realize in many ways that's the same world that these redeemed Israelites experienced as well. They accepted the reality that there's many gods, many alternatives, but for us and our community and our nation, we worship this one God alone. The same will be true for the first followers of Jesus when they go into the Roman world. It's not a question of were there many gods, little Gs, being worshipped. The message of the first Christian community was that Jesus is the big G above and over all the little Gs. And, and, and so that exclusivity that is marked by what we call the Lordship of Jesus Christ commands us and compels us To worship him and him only. So there's a community that this word is for. There's an exclusivity of this word. There's a uniqueness of this word. And the exclusivity is is that we will not be an idol-making, idol-creating nation. Other people do this. We don't. It's like when our kids were growing up, we never wanted to kind of give them kind of mental issues over the, because they were pastor kids. In fact, we would never use the, that word, pastor kid. PK is the kind of the jargon. What's it like being a PK? Are there any PKs here out of curiosity? A few hands, okay. Uh, because you already live in enough of a fishbowl that you kind of want to make your identity your family. Um, but so when our kids would do something that we didn't really want to encourage, we never wanted it to be, listen, I'm a pastor, or we're Christians. We, don't, we would say, we're Slompkas, and Slompkas just don't do that. You're a Slompka. I'm sorry. You were born that way, but Slompkas don't do that. We just don't do that. That's what really marks the uniqueness of these ten words is, We belong to Yahweh, to God, the God of gods, the creator of heaven and earth, and we as a people don't do that. Later on, we'll get to the commandment about the Sabbath, and with the Sabbath as a people, we say, yeah, you know, the rest of the world lives a 724 week. Slaves are at the mercy of their owners or their kings. There was no division to the week. There was no day off. But our God is a good God. He gives us one day off to rest. Unique among the peoples of the world at that time. There was no segmenting. There was no months as we think about months. There were seasons. Seasons to plant, seasons to, to maintain, seasons to harvest, But the idea of a week that was broken up by a day where you don't work, where you suspend work, that was unique, that's what makes us as a people unique. So there's a community behind this word, there's a uniqueness to this word, Um, there's an exclusivity to this word because only God and God alone do we worship. And then we come to the gravity of this word. The subject of God's anger or wrath or judgment kind of makes us very uncomfortable because number 1 God is not user friendly. He he is a jealous God. But he's not a jealous God because he's insecure. He's not a jealous God because he wants your time to make him feel great. His jealousy is born of his love. And when that love is breached, when, when that love is defiled, when those he loves are stolen, He has real feelings and emotion. We can't get around it. I remember years ago when I was pastoring a local church, I had a couple, and in fact, I was seeing two couples at the time. One couple, A, were dealing with infidelity and the anger of the offended spouse who so loved, in this case, his wife, that that he was jealous for her affection. We had to walk through that. What does that look like? How do we do repair? How is forgiveness? How do we mediate this breach? The case of the other couple, when she found out that her husband was being unfaithful, they came to me and and we were talking and I, I just noticed there was no emotion with her. And I said, "How can you not be angry? Do you not feel the freedom be anger?" And and she just matter of factly said, I, "I have no anger." And so as I'm sitting there, I cannot figure out how she could possibly not have any ha- anger or sense of rejection. And then it dawned on me. I think it was a word from the Lord. I said, "Is it that you have no anger because you?" we're already unfaithful to him. And she said, yeah. We've both been having affairs. We can't get around the relentless love of God without dealing with his emotion to what he finds offensive Rejecting because of this deep passion that he has for us. And we see this first revealed in the pages of what we traditionally call the Old Testament. And then we see after this first revelation of his his anger, we see how that progresses and how it culminates in the second revelation of who he is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We we see this progression between first revelation that we call the Old Testament and how all things find their completion in Jesus. Because you have to realize that when he speaks this, he's speaking this before there's any mediator, before there's any person or way of, of going to the Lord in contrition and forgiveness. And so first, there will come this whole sacrificial system that's going to be laid out. And the purpose of that is God providing a way for the ones who spurn him to be drawn near to him and to return to him. And then we see how that's completed in Jesus Christ ultimately as the ultimate mediator. Now, what this means is is that when we apply passages like this, we're not being told to imagine in your prayer life God being angry. That as we read these passages, we don't apply them today in the way they were first applied because they find their completion in how God has revealed himself in the personal work of Jesus. That Jesus is the revelation of how God expresses his anger today and how ultimately that will be expressed in a final judgment. Because if he loves you so passionately, if he loves the world so much that he would come in the person and promise and presence of Jesus Christ, then you have to ask yourself, what does he do With the anger of the ways that we break creation and we break the people that represents his crowning expression in creation. How does God manage God? And there's a sense in which we see that in the First Testament and we see that ultimately in the Second Testament through the person and work of Jesus. How. When you work with kids, you you teach them how to, quote, unquote, listen to their body or how to manage their emotions. Well, there is a sense in the Bible where the Bible is a revelation of how God manages his emotions. And how he manages them at Mount Sinai is different than how he manages them through the personal work of Jesus Christ. It's not to put a wedge between the First Testament and the Second Testament. It's not to say that the God of the Old Testament is not the same God as the God in the New Testament. It's to say that God reveals that how he manages his love and his justice progresses across the pages of Scripture. So that even in the person of Moses, for example, when Moses comes down the mountain, the first way that Moses' descent from the mountain is covered in the First Testament is to talk about the radiance and how he has to hide his face behind a scarf because of the radiance of God's glory on his face. In the New Testament, in the Second Testament, Paul is dealing with that same radiance, and now he's talking about how that's a fading glory But that through Jesus Christ, we have an unfading glory. And so the scriptures are very much dealing with how the first encounters with God are presented. And then they're concerned about how ultimately the second big revelation of God is presented and where the continuity is present and why this second testament exceeds the revelation of the first testament. Doesn't make it void doesn't make it wrong, doesn't make it an error. It's just that like moving from a typewriter to a word processor, there is a fullness that is recognized and how God manages his love and his justice, you cannot divorce the two, are reconciled through the person, power, promise, and presence of Jesus Christ in our world. I hope that makes sense. That's why we can read the scriptures, both the First Testament and the Second Testament, and understand that sometimes the application is how that doesn't continue today. It's not like we have to envision God behaving the same way today. It's it's He chooses to behave and express himself differently. And sometimes the application, when we read the First Testament, It's just to see, as it says in the letter to the Hebrews, how superior God's covenant promises are expressed through Jesus than the way he first revealed himself on that mountain in the desert. So God's anger is still present today, but that anger is mediated willfully through the person presence, promise, and power of Jesus Christ towards us. So then there's the promise of his word in which it says here that I am the Lord your God punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. Literally in the Hebrew, it's punish parents and children who reject me, third and fourth generations. What what he's saying here is, is that the reason for the rejection is because of the generations that reject him first. But how much greater is his grace expressed Because there's this intentional contrast here. I'm not even sure that it's meant to be taken literally. It's the intent of God's heart, which is to be taken literally, which is his grace always is more expansive than his judgment. His judgment is local. His grace is global. Literally, there's no definite article in the Hebrew either. It's literally unto generations. His grace extends unto generations. Because God so loved the world that he sent his only son that all who should believe in him will be gifted, shall have eternal life. Okay, real quick, the good word broken. We're not going to take time to read the scripture, so Michelle. Um, You can um, skip over the Exodus 32 slides. Uh, But this is when Moses has been on the mountain too long. The people are anxious, they're insecure. So they approach Aaron and they say, make us an idol that we may worship. And so Aaron collects their wealth, their gold, and he fashions that into an idol, which is the calf. We have no understanding of, of what the calf was representing. Uh, We don't have any archeological evidence that calves were like the popular thing in the day. Uh, It was just that, for some reason, he felt led to make a calf. Don't, the real issue here is the idol, not the object created. And so Aaron makes this, and I wanna make a few observations as we look at this as a case study first is where do idols come from and I want to suggest to you this morning that idols are fashioned and offered by weak leaders who are captive to our thoughts and desires they're made by weak leaders who are influenced by the fears, aspirations, and insecurities of the people they lead. That's where idols come from first. Idols that overtake a nation arise from weak and insecure leaders who are responding to your insecurity, your fears, your aspirations, your unfulfilled yearnings. As a pastor, you sometimes come to a realization that once you have a conversation where people say, you know, I'm no longer going to, to stay here at this church because I didn't like what you said last Sunday. And you begin to explore that. And one of the epiphanies I had as a pastor was realizing people choose churches because they think the pastor already agrees with them. And the pastor who's insecure about that is going to make sure they don't preach or say anything that's going to cause the congregation to disagree with them. And so it's kind of this symbiotic relationship. But the trouble is, is that as I read the Bible, I think most of the books of the Bible are there because God disagreed with the people. What we call conviction of sin, isn't that God disagreeing with you? I mean, at the end of the day, if if you have a conviction of sin, isn't God saying, yeah, that's not right? How you're thinking isn't right. How you're treating other people isn't right. How you're behaving isn't right. Your orientation towards me isn't right. And on and on it goes. I mean, it seems like we have a whole section in the First Testament of books called the prophets that is essentially the, the record of what and why God disagrees with the people That are saying we represent him. And so there's this this sense in which insecure leadership will either continue the idolatry or continue to fashion the idolatry, and an idol makes concrete the spiritual orientation of the soul. So all Aaron is doing is giving the people what they want that satisfies their insecurity and the orientation that their soul already has. Secondly, Idols are created from what we value, from what we perceive to be wealth. And so here, God has despoiled Egypt by allowing the Israelites to leave Egypt with the wealth of Egypt, and now that very wealth, which they theoretically need to form their new nation, they're actually now going to give back to Aaron and say, make us someone that we can bow down to worship. And so the reality is that idols rob us of the very thing that we long for. Idols are an answer to our fears as well as our aspirations. And, it's, and so it is people make choices. We behave, we think, we do. We bow down and we'll gov- give up a lot to an idol in hopes that that idol will secure that which we long and live for but idols what do they do they rob us of the very gifts of god because they demand our fidelity and worship idols interfere with our worship and our service idols interfere if we value time to an extent we'll actually say well I'm not going to go to my open table this week because of work or because I can't get my workout in and do open table. What, In other words, what we truly value is reflected in our life and our lifestyle. So it is like when our kids were growing up, one of the things that we just didn't participate in as a family was Sunday morning sports, because that was when our worship services were, and God comes first. And so I remember one of our daughters, she was going to miss the team picture, because the team picture was scheduled at 11 on a Sunday morning. We just said, you know, I guess they'll Photoshop you in or something. I mean, but, but how we do with our time, I mean, there's this, been, there's this trend now, and I can, I can recognize it. I don't have to accept it. I can accept that it's reality. I don't have to accept it as it's good. And that is like the, the committed follower of Jesus who says, I'm committed to that community of faith as a rule is defined as two times a month. And the reason why it's two times a month isn't because of their work schedule. It's just there's other things to do. How, how do we display the exclusivity of God's claim upon our life if everything isn't subject to his time, value, and presence? That's something we all have, have to struggle with. We all have to struggle with. What, what indicates to a world around us, and I'm not thinking legalistically here, I'm just thinking what marks us off as a people? And what establishes you as an individual that we will not bow down before the idols of our culture and the idols of our generation. Every generation has its own kind of arrangement of idols that we're all confronted with and we're all tempted by. The idols of one generation may not be the idols of another generation, but the idols are present. And how we arrange our life truly expresses who we serve, what we serve, what are our highest aspirations. Because again, going back to ancient times or in our times, it's, it's not that there aren't other gods around us. It's just how do we live in such a way that our life isn't a portfolio of idols that we bow down to, but a life that doesn't have a portfolio Because God is God, and as someone once observed, either he is Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. How do we live, steward our lives in such a way? Okay, let's talk real quick about um, the good word illustrated, creativity in the second commandment. Because at Light Church, both Encinitas and downtown, we're a two-campus community. We value creativity. We value the arts. And so, given this commandment, you shall not make, how do we think about the arts? How do we interact with the arts, our creativity? And the first thing I just want to observe is that this commandment is about idolatry, not about art. It's not a statement on art. Secondly, the commandment condemns art created to be an object of worship and not a resource for worship. Big difference. Art as a resource for worship, not art as a place of worship. Because just a a chapter later in chapter 31, God's going to give... um, two chapters, rather, after the golden calf incident, God is going to give design, art, and he says, I'm even setting aside two men in whom I have given artistic skills to build, design, to craft. And then there's all kinds of imagery that God places around the temple that is meant to be a resource for worship, not an object of worship. And so... When we think about art, we want to think about how our creativity can be used to, to help tell the story of our faith and inspire our faith, inspire our worship to resource us and the world in our perception, in our openness, in our love for what God has either created or called forth or has accomplished in the person of Christ. Art is human reflection that allows us to see what God has already revealed. It's not a revelation to reveal what is divinely hidden. So anything that God has created, we want, we want to use art, music. We want to use drama. We want to use painting, sculpture, writing. What, all these art forms we want to use and engage to inspire reflection upon the story that God has revealed in the pages of Scripture. So it doesn't mean that everything has to have a happy ending. It doesn't mean that the story can't be a narrative about evil. It doesn't mean that every story has to have the person of Jesus. It, it means that we tell stories that out-narrate the stories that are being narrated in our culture and world today that will cause people to reflect that, why are we broken? What's good, what's beautiful? What are stories that point us to Jesus? I remember when Harry Potter came out. We read Harry Potter to our kids. When Christians found out that we were reading Harry Potter to our children, you would would have thought we were ending their day with the Satan's Bible. I mean, uh, someone sent me a picture of two kids in wizard costumes over a crystal ball saying Christian, and it had a headline about Christian kids who are reading Harry Potter. The person who sent it to me didn't know that they were sending me a news article from a website called The Onion, which was all about satirizing reality. And so, that was funny enough, but but my response was, you have a book where the summary At the end of the book of what's going on is you have that mark on your head, Harry, because someone loved you so much that they died for you to protect your life. Now, I don't know about you, but I see a gospel story in that. I I see grounds for a great conversation. So art, creativity is in service Of the great story. We have a better story to tell, and therefore anything that we can employ creatively that helps us tell that story is beautiful and helpful. Because God's given us that capacity. Art requires the sacred obligation not to employ creativity in service of the false, the profane or the immoral it's not that there isn't immoral parts to a story we may tell and create it doesn't mean that there won't be an expression of evil of violence of injustice in the stories we create it's just is evil called evil is good called good Is love identified as love, or do we tell an alternative story where the false is true, where the immoral is considered good, where the profane is considered normal? It's just, what does that story contain that would point people heavenward or being in alignment with what God has already revealed in his word? And art is the exercise of mission and worship it's the highest expression of the, of the creative mind. Art can inspire celebration, conviction, commemoration or remembrance, consideration, and can inspire creativity itself. Your expressions of creativity could inspire someone else to explore their creativity. And so that's why we have these art nights Uh, in light, where people gather at the chapel in North County and they may have a reading, they may have a song, whatever. There's times come together for painting and artwork uh, because in exploring creativity, number one, it's the capacity that God has given humans that is in the image of God. Chimpanzees are clever, but they don't draw. They don't create. They don't write books. They don't compose poetry. They don't write music. I mean, there's so many things creatively that God has dispensed amongst us that the very act of creativity can inspire someone else's creativity. It might not be in your area of giftedness, but it might cause someone to explore their creativity in baking, uh, Carol and I—I confess—we're addicts to the Great British Bake Off or whatever we watch every season. We sit there watching things that we can never uh, make ourselves. Or we watch that show, Chopped, and um, and I'm just always amazed at how someone can be given these ingredients and they they have a vision for what they can do. I mean, that's artistic. It's creative. You give some people a pen and what they can write or create in terms of prose and poetry. Give other people a paintbrush. And the whole thing is, you don't have to be good at it for it to be meaningful. When we went to sell our first house, we were getting ready for the market. We came home from a date night or something. And our youngest daughter was four, I think, at the time. And she had made a mural with a number two pencil on the entryway door. Look at this! A future Michelangelo. It, it doesn't have to be good. It's, it's the person who draws it and what they're expressing. No parent of a child, no art teacher. Well, I did have an art teacher, actually. I got a D in art. My, my um, third grade, I got a D in art. My dad was furious at me. He says, what did you do? Did you act up in class? No. Did you talk back to the teacher? No. Did you get in a fight? No. Did you do this? No, no, no. He goes, well, then how could you get a D in art? I go, I don't know. So he makes an appointment with the teacher. And we, we go to see her. And my dad goes, my son says he hasn't done anything wrong in the class. And she looks at my dad and she goes, yeah, he hasn't. And he goes, well, then why did he get a D in art? And she said, your son's not artistic. So I grew up saying I can do anything, I'm just not artistic. But the reality is I just wasn't artistic in her limited definition of what artistic is. The great thing about this commandment is it's not against art. It's just against the misuse of it. So as we kind of come out of this... Reflection this morning. I, I want to ask you two things. One, is the God of the First and Second Testaments who is fully loving and wholly just, and as God has the right to exert his lordship over you, is that the God you worship? Or have you somehow isolated God's love and justice so that either he pursues justice pitilessly without love or he loves despite injustice? Have you kind of divided those things out to where he can no longer be Lord? And then secondly, have you allowed either yourself or others, quench the creativity that God has given you to express towards him and to inspire others by. That you are quenching the creative gifts that God has given you to express yourself to him or to inspire others by. because I just know at this stage of my life there is a wealth of creativity in this room that can be brought to bear in service of the mission of this church. Grace and the worship team are not the only musically talented and creative people in this gathering. What would a gathering of musicians, lyricists, artists look like at Light Downtown that didn't worry about, am I as good as the other person, or is this good, but but could there be a creative community that cheers one another on, whose art and expression increases as we encourage one another? Got to believe there's writers and poets in this room that you're quenching your capacity to express and inspire because you're so concerned with whether it's good or not. That there's painters, maybe sculptors in this room that could express and inspire others through what. Could be created through your hands and the testimony of what motivated you and inspired you to write, paint, sculpt, create. Because, see, that's part of the story, is it brings other people into our world as we express ourselves creatively. And that's the amazing thing at the end of the day with this commandment for me, as I've reflected on it this week, it's a challenge. And it's a calling to not reduce the presence of God in such a way that he would be confined to an idol which isn't real and doesn't exist and will leave you dissatisfied and it will corrupt and it will limit the very creativity that God has given you. My God, the creativity that is in this room. May it not be stifled by our idolatry. So let me invite Grace and the worship team forward. Father, as we conclude our time together, I pray in Jesus' name that we would be sobered by your call to devote ourselves to you and you only season and relationships influence how that gets applied. But Lord, we want to submit ourselves afresh to you who is Lord of all. That no idol, whether it be an object, an aspiration, would get between you and us. That we would not bend our knee Devote our energies to anything that does not represent your best, your mercy, and your truth in our lives. May Light Church downtown be a community of women and men and youth and kids who fully devote ourselves to you. Who have surrendered to a different narrative that outnarrates the world around us and who are made alive by the presence of your Holy Spirit, releasing us into the freedom that you have purchased for us to be creative women and men and youth and children. Lord, that every generation amongst us might have the liberty to express the creativity that you have deposited here that will tell your story and will inspire all of us both within this church and within the larger San Diego community downtown to be influenced towards the person, the presence, the power and promise of Jesus Christ. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.